Chapter 8 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 8. Edward and the Three Estates. The Development of the Parliamentary System. The same principles which influence Edward as a lawgiver stand out clearly in his relations to every class of his subjects. Long before Edward had entered on his political career, the centralised despotism which Henry II had built up had been overthrown, and the idea of a limited monarchy, controlled by a great national council, and reigning in accordance with the principles of the Great Charter, had become dimly perceptible to the minds of Englishmen but the strong tendency was to rely almost exclusively upon the great barons to keep the crown in check. The Oxford Parliament had set up a baronial oligarchy, which proved almost as oppressive to the nation at large as it was derogatory to the dignity of the crown. For the clash of interests between the crown and the barons forced both alike to fall back upon a broader platform, and to take into partnership with them the lesser landholders and the merchants and traders of the town. This was the policy of Earl Simon, this had been Edward's own policy, even before Montford had gathered together his famous Parliament of 1265. The fuller realisation of the ideal rested, however, with the able and ambitious Earl. But no part of the heritage of Simon was more valuable to Edward than his uncle's policy of trusting in the people at large. It was the greatest work of Edward's life to make a permanent and ordinary part of the machinery of English government what in his father's times had been but the temporary expedient of a needy tax-gatherer or the last despairing effort of a revolutionary partisan. Edward I is, so much as one man can be, the creator of the historical English constitution. It is true that the materials were ready to hand. But before he came to the throne, the parts of the constitution, though already were roughly worked out, were ill-defined and ill-understood. Before his death, the National Council was no longer regarded as complete, unless it contained a systematic representation of the three estates. All over Europe, the 13th century saw the establishment of a system of estates. The various classes of the community, which had a separate social status and a common political interest, became organised communities and sent their representatives to swell the council of the nation. By Edward's time, there had already grown up in England some rough anticipation of the three estates of later history. The clergy had, through their special spiritual character and their common organisation in church councils, acquired a very definite status of their own. The baronage had become narrowed down by a strong tendency of the lesser tenants-in-chief to disassociate themselves from the great laws and act with the mass of the lesser gentry in the shire courts. The policy of Montford had already brought together the knights of the shires and the representatives of the town in a single organised community. By dexterously combining the new system of estates with the old ideas of local representation, Edward erected the estate of the commons as a necessary part of the machinery of the Constitution. He is also in a very real sense the creator of the House of Lords. It was no fault of his if the clerical estate did not also take up its part, side by side with the two more permanent elements in our later constitutional life. In regard to this development of the system of estates, Edward's relations to the various classes of the community assumes a special importance. It will be necessary to speak later of his uneasy dealings with the clerical body. But the course of the development of our parliamentary institutions can perhaps be made clearer by a short account of Edward's early attitude towards the barons and the commons. 
During the earlier part of Edward's reign, the baronial opposition, which had so constantly kept his father in check, had almost no existence at all. The barons were perhaps a little suspicious of some of Edward's legislative tendencies, and we have seen how the opposition to the writs of the Quo Warranto might easily have produced another organised effort at resistance, but Edward, by his careful regard for his barons' legal rights, gradually won their complete confidence. His policy of legal reformation in those directions in which the king and the barons had a common interest did much to strengthen his good relations with the great nobles. So far there was any baronial opposition to Edward at this period, its leader was Earl Gilbert of Gloucester. The Red Earl's extreme tenacity in upholding his own rights was constantly embroiling him with his neighbours. His love of strong-handed local feuds often involved him in private wars which were altogether hateful to Edward's orderly and law-loving mind. More than once his relations with the king were very strained. At one time he was suspected of sheltering Welsh fugitives in his Irish estates. He was on very bad terms with his wife, Alice of Angliane, Edward's Pontivan cousin, whom he ultimately divorced. At last, in 1288, he headed the baronage in refusing to pay any subsidy until the king came back to England. In 1290, his hostility was bought off by his marriage with Joan of Acre, Edward's daughter, though a year later he carried an open war against the Earl of Hereford for the possession of the marshal lordship of Brecon. For this consummacy, both earls were fined and imprisoned, and Earl Gilbert's death in 1295, just before the reconstitution of a baronial opposition, prevented him from ever having again the opportunity of renewing the turbulent scenes of his youth. His attitude was typical. If Earl Gilbert could find so little to oppose in Edward's policy, the mass of the barons had still less to say against it, and it was in the years of this absence of opposition that Edward carried through the organisation of the historical House of Lords. Edward's dealings with the commons are more complicated. There is little to show that he was often in opposition to the Shah communities. On the contrary, the statesman, who in his youth had been the greatest upholder of the political claims of the knighthood, continued to find in the gentry of England his best and strongest support. It was otherwise with the towns, with whom Edward was constantly quarrelling. This was largely due to his constant financial embarrassment, and especially to his tendency to bargain with the foreign merchants, who, in return for increased facilities for carrying on their trade, made him large grants of money, and that the more willingly as the what they conceded to the king came ultimately out of the English pockets. But the memory of the Barons' War was not quite dead, and had a great deal to do with the exceptionally bad relations between Edward and London. London was now ruled by a civic oligarchy, whose most conspicuous leader, Henry de Wiles, a wine merchant and probably a Gascon by birth, was on many occasions Mayor of London, and once Mayor of Bordeaux. The rule of this body seems to have been politically offensive to Edward, and not very successful in maintaining order. After many quarrels, Edward took a decisive step in 1285. He ordered the mayor to appear before the treasurer, John Kirkby, who kept his court in the tower. The mayor attended, but he declared that his summons was against the franchises of London, and that he appeared but as a simple citizen anxious to show respect to the king's representative, and not as an official. Thereupon Kirkby took the morality and the liberties of the city into the king's hand because the city was found to be without a mayor. A royal official, Ralph Sandwich, was made warden of the city, and from 1285 until 1298, the Londoners were deprived of their rights for electing their chief magistrate and forced to pay obedience to a royal nominee. In other respects, the liberties were preserved, and, as at Bordeaux, Edward did his best to encourage their trade. 
Perhaps Edward's hostility to the Londoners accounts for the great efforts made by him to encourage the growth of other towns. He was, moreover, one of the few English statesmen who definitely founded new towns in England, and he chose the sites for his new foundations so well that they have, for the most part, subsequently prospered. When old Winchelsea was overwhelmed by the sea, Edward founded New Winchelsea, which, until the sea receded from its walls, remained one of the great ports of southern Britain. He also established the town of Hull, which took from him its full name of Kingston upon Hull. These foundations show how the ideas which Edward had already realised in Gascony and Wales were extended to England. But despite his uneasy relations with certain towns, Edward was fortunate in the early part of his reign in meeting with so little opposition from the estate of the commons. Edward's high-handed dealings with the English towns show how tenacious he was of his prerogative. It was with no intention of diminishing his power, but rather with the object of enlarging it, that Edward called the nation into some sort of partnership with him. The special clue to this aspect of his policy is his constant financial embarrassment. He found that he could get larger and more cheerful subsidies if he laid his financial condition before the representatives of his people. Apart from the special difficulties which Edward inherited, there were more general causes for his financial distress. We have already seen how the elaborate machinery of government set up by Edmund II was rapidly becoming obsolete. Now this partial breakdown of the Angevin system extended to its financial organisation, and the complex arrangements which made the sheriff the king's general tax-gatherer was already becoming worn out. Edward was therefore forced to seek new sources of revenue for himself. One such stream of income he found in the ancient tolls or duties levied upon merchandise of all sorts, both on its coming into and leaving the realm. The growing commerce, which attended a more settled state of society and a better system of government, made these duties, or customs, more important and valuable than they had been before. For the same reason, the rude old way of levying the customs by taking a certain portion of all goods sent in or out of the realm for the king's use became irksome to the traders and unsatisfactory to the king. In 1275, accordingly, Edward agreed with the same parliament that passed the Statute of Westminster, the first, to accept a specified custom in money in lieu of the rights of prize over the staple commodities of the English trade conspicuous among which were wool and leather. Thus originated the ancient custom or great custom, which remained for the rest of the Middle Ages an important source of royal revenue. But the king's vague old rights still remained, except in the case of certain specified commodities, and in the times of distress Edward could not resist laying violent hands upon a larger share of the merchant's goods than any customary or statutable right to possess. His violence and excessive maltreaties provoked a storm of oppression in the great crisis of his reign, which ended in 1297 with their formal abolition. But even after this, Edward made a special bargain with the alien merchants trading to England, who in return for certain trading privileges granted to him in the 1303 a new custom, which, after much opposition, was at a later date accepted by the representatives of the nation. Meanwhile, Edward had gradually organised and developed a better system of collecting the customs revenue. But as he handed over its collection to companies of Italian merchants, much of it, no doubt, never reached his hands. Edward was still forced to seek for further supplies. He was therefore compelled, as his predecessors had been, to have recourse to the representatives of his people and ask them for many direct parliamentary grants and subsidies, hence the close connection between the financial and the parliamentary history of the reign. 
Edward's early parliaments strike us as very chaotic and anomalous. One year the king assembled the knights of the shires, but the next year he contended with summoning the barons and bishops. And both the full representative parliaments and the old-fashioned baronial parliaments seem to have discharged exactly the same functions, and to have been looked upon as with equal authority and competence. In 1282, Edward fell back on an even more ancient expedient. He sent John Kirkby, his trusted financier, on a tour around the different shires and boroughs and asked each community separately to help him bear the cost of the war against Llewellyn. The answers being adequate, the king summoned knights of the shires and boroughs representatives to meet side by side with the clergy in two assemblies, the one for the province of Canterbury and the other for that of York, thus modelling a secular parliament on an ecclesiastical council. The response of these anomalous bodies proved so far satisfactory to Edward that he never seems to have fallen back upon negotiations with the local courts. The result was a step in advance. Local and individual consent to taxation was superseded by national and general consent, and the old notion of a tax as a voluntary grant to the king was replaced by the more refined conception of it as a universal duty of citizenship. In strong contrast to the parliaments of 1282, Edward summoned in 1283 a parliament to Shrewsbury that contained nobles, knights and burgesses, but no clergy. The composition of a parliament seems still to depend upon the nature of the business to be laid before it. So late as 1290, a merely baronial parliament passed the important statute Quia Emperturus. The third estate was summoned, but its representatives only appeared after the act was passed. It was a question for the barons specially, and the commons had no need to concern themselves with it. The period of experiment now rapidly passed away. Various as are the elements of Edward's early parliaments, yet we can still see the direction in which the current was steadily setting. People were getting so accustomed to the presence of the popular element that it had become almost the exception for it to be absent. Then came a period of crisis, a time of unsuccessful war abroad, of sedition at home, of rebellion in the newly annexed districts, and of open war with the great power of the church. Edward felt that he could only meet his difficulties if he got the support of the mass of the nation on his side. He also realised it was only by national grants that he could permanently keep up sufficient forces to get the better of his enemies. He enunciated the great and pregnant maxim that what touches all should be approved by all. In 1293 and 1294, large representative parliaments laid great burdens upon the nation, but upon the practical condition that it was necessary to ask the clergy and the commons for their consent before any taxes could be constitutionally imposed upon them. In 1295, a further and final step was taken. Edward then assembled a parliament so full and complete that it rightly became looked upon as a model parliament for succeeding ages. To it came the earls and barons as a matter of course, but by their side gathered two knights chosen by the popular court of each shire, and two citizens or burgesses from every city or borough town, summoned like their county members by writs sent in the first instance to the sheriff of the shire. Moreover, the clergy was also fully represented. The archbishops, bishops, abbots and other dignitaries down to the deans and archdeacons were there in person. But each chapter also sent its proctor or representative, and the parochial clergy of each diocese sent in some way two proctors. The result was a complete parliament of the three estates. From this year, no other great council can be regarded as possessing supreme and exclusive powers in matters of great weight. In the great parliaments in the later years of Edward's reign, the precedent set by this famous assembly was carefully followed. The Parliament of 1295 suggests a comparison with the Parliament of 1265. 
but its differences are as instructive as its similarities with the earlier and perhaps more famous assembly. Now, both were roughly based upon the same broad lines of general national representation. It was also the good fortune, rather than the merit of Edward, that the Parliament of 1295 was a real gathering of the whole nation, and not like that of 1265, a mere Parliament assemblage of partisans of the dominant faction. By summoning the borough members by writs addressed to the sheriffs of the counties, Edward effected one important improvement in detail on the arrangement of Simon, who had sent the borough writs direct to the towns themselves. Edward's practice afterwards prevailed and had the good result of teaching the townsfolk to look upon themselves as parts of the shire, and not as isolated communities cut off from the life of the nation at large. But the really important thing was that Edward, like Monford, brought shire and borough representative together in a single estate, and so taught the country gentry, the lesser landowners, who, in a time when direct participation in politics was impossible for a lower class, were the real constituencies of the shire members, to look upon their interest as more in common with the traders of lower social status than with the greater landlords with whom in most continental countries the lesser gentry were forced to associate their lot. The result strengthened the union of classes, prevented the growth of the abnormally numerous privileged nobility of most foreign countries, and broadened and deepened the main current of national life. Moreover, in the summonses issued to the baronial class, Edward strictly limited himself to a small and restricted number of magnates. No doubt the main lines on which the barons were summoned were marked out for Edward by long precedent, but it was left to the king and to no other to draw the exact line where he did. The lesser barons of the Angevin times, the smaller tenants-in-chief, no longer received a baronial summons, for Edward, faithful to his doctrine of elimination of tenure from politics, forced them to throw in their lot with immense tenants in the shire courts and be represented by the chosen men of the shire community at large. The special writs now issued to a few score remaining barons were looked upon as practically involving the summons of their successors as well. Though life peers by no means disappeared altogether, the custom of hereditary peerage was also established by Edward's action. The lawyers always held that the male heirs of whose lawful ancestors received a summons for his model parliament can claim a right to a writ of summons. Even more than the House of Commons, the House of Lords thus largely owes its limited and hereditary character the action of Edward and his advisers. The clerical estate did not, however, long retain its position in Parliament. The separatist class feelings of the clergy, the irksome tie of papal obedience and the extravagant immunities which medieval tradition allowed to the spiritual caste were all unfavourable to their remaining on the same lines as the other estates. Moreover, the clergy had in their provincial councils or convocations assemblies whose constitution was essentially similar to that of the clerical estate in Parliament, whose composition was being fixed and defined by Archbishop Peckham, in the same way and at the same time as Edward himself was defining the composition of Parliament. In after ages, the clergies preferred to tax themselves in convocation, and kings anxious to avoid difficulties let them have their way. Meanwhile, the bishops and abbots, who, like the earls and barons, were also magnates, sat side by side with the secular lords, with the result that the next century saw the establishment of the two houses of lords and commons, instead of the three separate gatherings of the three estates which might have been anticipated from Edward's action in 1295. But to trace this process would carry us far away from the biography of Edward. Enough has been said to show how important a part the great king played in the development of our parliamentary system. At the same time, Edward's neighbours, the kings of Western Europe, 
were engaged in the same task of building up a national kingship on the basis of a representative system of estates. The work of Edward has alone in any way survived, and the wildest upholder of the claims of Edward to greatness would not ascribe to him the sole or the main merit of this superior permanence. The reasons for it are deeply seated in the whole of the previous and subsequent history of England. Yet we must not forget that our national pride in our institutions has led us to exaggerate rather than to minimise the difference between the 13th century England and our main continental neighbours. There is, in truth, hardly such a deep gulf as has been commonly supposed between England of Edward and the France of Philip the Fair, between Edward's Parliament and the States General with Philip, called into being to resist the forces of Roman aggression. What differences there were certainly lay in the favour of England. Where a happier past had produced a broader and richer stream of continuity from remote ages, and where there existed institutions and traditions that made for nationality, and did not rest on the personal basis of a despot's goodwill. But some share at least of the credit of the superior success of the working of parliamentary institutions in England may not unjustly be set down to the credit of Edward. His skilful union of national and dynastic purpose, his selection of the best and most fruitful precedents, his strong good sense and business-like adaptation of means to ends, all united to further the growth of that national parliamentary constitution, which, though its roots lay deep in the past, took under its auspices the shape and form which he retained, with but little variation to the revolution of 1688, and even, so far as the externals went, until the reform bills of the present century, following the true spirit of Edward, recast the old institutions to meet the new and changed necessities. End of chapter 8